Thanks for listening. The following audio is a teaching from Calvary Tucson's Young Adult Ministry, Ignition. For more teachings, information, or if you'd like to support our ministry, please visit us online at ignitiontucson.com. We pray you're blessed by the message. So he says, should I keep this from Abraham? Verse 18, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by what? Doing righteousness and justice. So the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. So the Lord decides to tell Abraham why. He's like, because this guy is going to lead a nation into righteousness. Abraham is going to teach the next generation and the nation to come how to walk in righteousness. And that's the fourth thing that we need to know to position ourselves to hear from God. And that is righteousness. We need to walk in righteousness. We need to do what is right. We need to walk in right living. That's what righteousness is. And we understand here from what the Lord is saying is that judgment is useful and maybe even necessary for us to walk in righteousness. The Lord is basically saying here, I want to let Abraham know about the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah because Abraham needs to be equipped to walk in righteousness. In fact, Jesus, uh, when he gave us his amazing, uh, the, the intimate time he spent with his disciples, John 14 through 17, before his crucifixion, he taught them amazing insights about the Holy Spirit. And one of the things he said about the Holy Spirit was that the, the Spirit's job is to convict the world of sin of righteousness and of judgment. Those three specifically, he says. The world needs to know about sin, righteousness, and judgment. And the three go hand in hand, or hand in hand in hand, I guess you'd say. Because if you want to do what is right, if you want to walk in righteousness, you have to know what is wrong, sin. You have to understand there are consequences for doing what is wrong. That is judgment. And so Abraham is about to learn this lesson by watching Sodom and Gomorrah and having insight from God that this is the judgment of God because of sin. Now, those of us who are saved, those of us who have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we are not under judgment at all. Thank God for that. And that's so important to know that the the punishment for your sins, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, was paid for on the cross. It's not that your sins will not be paid for. It's that Jesus already paid for them. Because God would be an unjust judge if He just let you off the hook. No, Jesus became your sin and was punished on the cross so that we who have faith in Christ, we are not subject to judgment now in the future. All of our sins, past, present, and future, are paid for. But this doesn't mean, please hear this, this doesn't mean we should forget about God's judgment. This doesn't mean that He doesn't care about the sins in our life. You see, when we start to think this way, when we start to lose sight of God's judgment, we tend to start taking grace for granted. And all of a sudden, we don't appreciate it. All of a sudden, grace becomes a license to do whatever you want. All of a sudden, you're like, well, I I know Jesus and and my heart's right, and so I'm going to do all these sins, and well, God's not going to judge me. He understands. And you start judging yourself by your intentions, and you might even be as hypocritical to turn around and judge others by their actions. Did you hear about so-and-so sleeping with her boyfriend? I can't believe 
And then here you are doing something very similar, but oh, but the Lord understands my situation. This is a very dangerous way of thinking, guys. In fact, in light of recent scandals that have come out in the church, some of these prominent pastors who have, it's been revealed that they were living in sexual immorality for years. It's tragic. And a lot of people have asked, what, how was it they, they could live such double lives? How is it that these men of God could get up in front of everybody and seem so righteous seem, and be so gifted and be so used by God, but be so ungodly behind the scenes? And I believe it's because they had lost sight of the judgment of God, of the fear of God, that somewhere along the way, they started believing that God would not judge them for the blatant sins they were committing. Somewhere along the way, they started taking grace for granted. And they, they fell from grace. As it says in Galatians. And that is, that is a scary, that's a scary verse in Galatians, honestly. Every time I read it. You know, I, I know those who, who, who preach eternal security, eternal salvation. I'm eternally secure in Christ because I abide in Christ. But what does it look like to fall from grace? For the Galatians, it was going back to the law. But it also means taking grace for granted using it as a license to sin. And that's what t- it's so dangerous, guys, this thinking. It leads to faith-wrecking unrighteousness when you start to think this way. But if we want the Lord's direction and encouragement, if we want to position ourselves for it, we need to maintain a healthy understanding for God's judgment, and we need to value righteousness in our own lives. Would anyone in your life say that you are a holy person? Would anyone in your life be able to say, you are, you're a righteous person? Do the people in your life have a hard time thinking of bad things that you do? I think these are important questions to ask yourself to identify if you're truly walking in righteousness. Verse 20, Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. What's happening here? Why is God, does he have to come down and see with his own physical eyes? This is what's called an anthropomorphic description of God. Meaning, God is showing us uh, natures of his character through physical human terms. He's, he's coming down saying, I'm, I've come to see if, if this is really true. I've come to see the sin that's taking place. But there's an important fact that we need to understand about God right away as we read this, and that is God is omniscient, meaning God knows everything. There's nothing that gets past God. God knows everything that has ever happened. He knows everything that will ever happen. And this will blow your mind. God also knows everything that could happen. Every possible outcome. He knows what would have happened differently in your life if you had a peanut butter jelly for lunch yesterday and not that carne asada burrito. (laughs) Just a little example. It's crazy. God is omniscient. He knows everything. So it's not necessary for God to come down physically and be like, what's going on here? I need to see for myself. God could have safely launched judgment from mission control in heaven. He had full knowledge of Sodom and Gomorrah's predicament and their sin and their situation. So I think we should ask, what does it show us about God's character as he comes down to see for himself? Well, I see, I see three things in here 
about God's character as to Him coming down. Number one, it shows us that God is not a distant and impersonal God. He's not so transcendent that He is unaware of the human condition. It can feel that way, that God is just some far distant, impersonal creator who, who spun creation into existence like a, like a wheel or like a top, and he's walked away and he, he's, he's indifferent to it. God is not that God. He is, he is involved. He is here. He is in the mix. He sees what's going on. He knows and he's aware. He's not afraid to get his hands dirty. That's what this shows us about God's character. Secondly, it shows us that he has purposefully made himself aware of our condition. God has intentionally made himself aware about what is going on in your life. God cares about... He doesn't accidentally know because he's, he's just plagued with being omniscient. He's like, oh, I didn't want to know that or that. Ah, get it out of my head. He's intentionally wanting to be aware of what's happening so that when judgment comes for those apart from Christ, when judgment comes for Sodom and Gomorrah, he will not judge according to conjecture or rumor. God will judge according to what he sees and what he knows as truth. And then the third thing I see here is that it shows us God is patient in his judgment. Well, obviously you're not in a hurry if you're going to sit down and have some cheeseburgers with Abraham and talk things over. And as we're going to see, he'll actually open the conversation to Abraham and hear Abraham reasoning with him about this judgment. God is slow. He's slow to anger. He's patient. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. So he takes his time. One commentator pointed out that God is so merciful, it should be a done deal for Sodom and Gomorrah, but he's still looking for someone to intercede for Sodom and Gomorrah. He's looking for someone to pray for these people. God is patient. Verse 22. So the men turned from there, and they went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? So Abraham, he takes in this news, and he's starting to picture what's happening here. And he, he believes with all of his heart, this is the Lord Almighty. He really believes there's nothing too hard for God. He believes God is capable of destroying an entire city. And no doubt, the thought of his beloved nephew Lot is entering into his mind right now. My fa- I have family in this town. And he's shocked by what he's heard. And now we find Abraham in a very interesting position. God has just revealed his plans to Abraham. And Abraham now finds himself afraid of God's plans and even in opposition to them. Abraham does not want this to happen. God is saying this is what's going to happen. And Abraham, the man of faith, who has found favor, is like, I oppose this plan. If we're, vo- if we're taking votes, Lord, I'd vote no. But again, what I love about God is He receives Abraham. He receives the opposition. He's, it's not like Peter and Jesus in the garden where Jesus was like not having it, right? Lord, you can't, you can't be crucified. You can't die. And He's like, get behind me, Satan. It's different. But why? Why is it different? Why is God all of a sudden being like hearing Abraham out? Well, I believe it's because Abraham's motives, he wasn't spurred on by rebelliousness. He wasn't spurred on by doubt. He was motivated by love. 
He was motivated. He was concerned about this plan because he cared for these people. We, we, t- we talk about the rapture of the church. As much as we want to see God deliver us from the wrath to come, there still is that heavy heart for those who would be left behind. In fact, there should be. I hope you're not one of these people just wanting to get rid of those filthy sinners in your life and hope God comes back. There should be a brokenness in our hearts for the people that will receive judgment one day. And Abraham has that. And I believe God is hearing Abraham out because he he loves seeing this. You see, God loves justice. He does. But even more than justice, He loves mercy. Especially when it's shown by His children. When His children get opportunity to exhibit mercy, God tunes in. He watches really closely. Like, watch. Watch this. Michael, check this out. They're about to be merciful. The Bible says that mercy triumphs over judgment. The Bible says that love covers a multitude of sins. You see, to the Lord, a good option, a good outcome would be the criminal getting what he deserves. The city getting the judgment they deserve. But you know what? A better outcome would be would be a criminal being brought to repentance because the victim learned to love their enemy. Why? Why would that be better? Because that is Christ-likeness. Because that transcends the human experience. Because that transcends and is greater than what we know as the law. A good outcome would be if, if, if wicked people attacked our city, a good outcome would be no lives lost. All the innocent lives saved. But a potentially better outcome from heaven's perspective would be someone laying down their life for their friends. Again, why? Because that's Christ-likeness. And Christ-likeness transcends the human experience. And when, when angels see people made out of dirt like you and me, our, our great-great-granddad and, and grandma, Adam and Eve, were made from dirt. And then he sees us acting like Jesus. It says they long to look into these things. When God sees you acting like Christ, it transcends your whole human experience. Heaven tunes in because it is fun to watch. And so here... God is, God is tolerating and even opening up his heart and ear to Abraham because Abraham is now placing himself as the intercessor like Jesus. The one wanting mercy for this city and that pleases God. Verse 24, he says, Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you, God. Shall not the judge of all the earth judge rightly? Abraham here, he's so concerned, again, out of love and mercy, that he's now questioning God's righteousness. Now, I don't blame him because we tend to do this as well. There, again, there are things from our side of heaven that are difficult to understand. And he makes a good argument. You're the judge of all the earth. You're supposed to be the most righteous judge. And would you destroy the wicked and the righteous together? And thankfully, God says, no, he won't. But in his argument and his desire to instruct the Lord on what is righteous, he forgets that he does so from a very limited perspective. In fact, oftentimes, we see injustice in our world, don't we? And it, it brings up big question marks. We see bad things happening to sweet people. 
We see innocent children being caught up in these human trafficking and drugs and growing up in these horrible homes where their, their parents abuse them. And you have these amazing parents, these, these amazing people over here that can't even have kids. And there's a lot of question marks. There's a lot of things that seem unjust in, in our world. And oftentimes, atheists will use this for their argument as to why God doesn't exist. The, the, the argument of evil. They say, this is how the, the breakdown works. You say your God is all-loving and all-powerful, but there's evil that exists. Therefore, either A, your God is not all-powerful, or B, your God is not all-loving. But either way, I don't believe he exists. That's basically what they say. And they'll try to get you to believe that your God doesn't exist. Now, if you think about it, it's actually not a logical argument. It's more of an emotional one. In fact, if you ever tune into an atheist debating a theist, pretty much everything they say in debate against God is not a logical argument. It's a reason why they don't want to believe in God. You'll hear the the theist, if they're a good debater, present logical evidence for the existence of a God. And then the atheist counters that by reasons why your God is such a mean God and why they would never want to believe in that God. And if you think about the claim, okay, something, some injustice has taken place and we ask why. The atheist says that your God is evil. To claim that God is evil because of an injustice that takes place, the person making that claim will have to prove that God had no morally sufficient reason for allowing that injustice to occur. They have to prove that God isn't good because he allowed that injustice to occur. The only way you can do that is by looking down the corridors of eternity. You would have to see the eternal outcome of that injustice, which is all that really matters, right? Eternal. Eternal outcomes is what God is working towards. Not what's here on earth. God is working everything towards an eternal outcome. You would have to look at the eternal outcome and prove that that outcome was not worth it to experience the injustice here and now. Nobody can do that except God. Which is why God is the only one we should be entrusting with the judgment of what should and shouldn't happen. Which is why God is the one who has this knowledge that's too great for us. The end game for God is more than we see here. He's working this for eternal good for the righteous and and tragically eternal condemnation for for the wicked. So Abraham is he's like, wow, I'm trying to reconcile. Are you, are you going to do something that's not good, God? And he starts to instruct the Lord in righteousness. But know this, guys. When God finally does pour out his wrath, as he did with Sodom and Gomorrah, the same as he did with Sodom and Gomorrah will be in the end. He will not include the righteous with the wicked. And this is why I believe a pre-trib rapture position is the most biblical view. Because when it comes time to pour out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world, his church will not, his bride will not be included in that. The tribulation period is God's last attempt to save those who are subject to wrath. He pours out his wrath before the true wrath of judgment comes at the great white throne. And many do get saved during this horrible time, but the church is, is spared from it. As it says in Thessalonians, pray that you would escape this, that God has not, that God has not appointed us to wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we see here. We'll talk about it more next week. But God does deliver the righteous before he judges the city. Verse 26. And the Lord said, If I find Sodom in Sodom 50 righteous in the city, 
I will spare the whole place for their sake. And Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, who I, uh, I who am but dust and ashes. So as Abraham starts to speak to the Lord about what is right and what is not, it, he comes with a humble heart. And humility goes a long way, guys. If you have something hard to say to somebody, if you're disagreeing with somebody, if you are praying to God about something, humility goes a long way. Come with a humble heart. Verse 28, he says, Well, suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole sake for lack of five? He says, I will not destroy it for 45 there. He again spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30. This is a great example of persistence in prayer. He is persistent. He's like, man, I, I, need to, I need to intercede. I've taken it upon myself not to intercede. This is massive. I'm, I'm saving lives here. I'm going to save this town. And he starts whittling this number down. But it's also somewhat humorous. Again, because Abraham, remember, Abraham is here instructing the Lord now on what's righteous. And it's just funny to me how arbitrary our standard of righteousness is. He's like, God, that would not be right to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Lord's like, well, what would be right? He's all, uh, 50? 50? What if there are 50 guys there? You, would you, no, I wouldn't do it for 50. And he's like, whoa, you answered that really fast. And now all of a sudden, it's like he's bartering with the guy on the beach trying to sell sunglasses. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you 20 for those. Okay, yeah. Oh, wait, maybe that was a little too easy of a sell. Would you take 45? 30? 20? 10, all right, yeah, deal. And so he'll whittle this down. And he's, he, it's so arbitrary. He, Abraham doesn't know really what the righteous number would be. The Lord does. But Abraham has no idea. But again, he's, he's, he's doing this for, because of a heart of love and mercy for this place. And God is hearing him out. God is so patient with him. He's saying, no, Abraham, I wouldn't do it for 30. I wouldn't do it for, for 20. We have some understanding of righteousness. We do. God has put a conscience within you. He also instructs us in righteousness, and so we learn, but we really are not, no human being is qualified to instruct God on what is right. Again, which is why it's so absurd that people who choose not to believe in God because of evil they see, they're becoming the instructors of righteousness for God. Well, if God would have done it this way, things would have been a lot more righteous. It's silly. We don't, we don't know half of what God knows with regards to righteousness. Verse 31. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. I just picture the Lord like smiling, loving Abraham, like, I, I, just God bless your heart, Abraham. You know? <laughs> I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak again, but, one, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way. And when he finished speaking to Abraham, Abraham returned to his place. Abraham's like, there's got to be 10. There's got to be at least 10. Lot, his wife, his daughters, their husbands, they've got to have shortened with at least two other friends. There's got to be at least 10. Okay, I saved, job done. I saved the city here. He goes back and does his thing. Now, we're going to have to wait till next chapter to see what happens with Lot and his family, but... Uh, things do not fare well for Sodom and Gomorrah. And 
as I close, I just, I just want to close with a question to you guys. If God were to come back right now to see your life, to see with his own eyes, what would your experience be like? Would you have the experience of Abraham or would it be more like Sodom and Gomorrah? My hope, my prayer is that every single one of you, it would be like Abraham. Like if God came back to visit you because you already have a close relationship with Jesus Christ, because he's already guiding you and directing you, it would be like the Lord coming to reassure you that you've positioned yourself to receive that direction from God. And he would sit down and he would encourage you and he would remind you of all the great promises he has for you. He'd share a meal with you. And it would be a sweet time of fellowship with the Lord. That's my prayer, that it, what it would look like for you. But I, I think for some listening, it wouldn't be the case. In fact, it might be more like Sodom and Gomorrah's situation where he would have to come in secret. He would keep his distance from you because you've kept your distance from him for so long that he doesn't really know. You guys don't have the relationship anymore or, or you never have. And maybe the only business he would have, as much as he would want to encourage you and remind you of the amazing plans he has for your life, the only thing he would be able to do is see the sin that you're choosing over a relationship with him. And, and writing that down and recording that, the sins you're harboring in your life. I hope and pray that is not the case for you. And I want to tell you something. It was too late for Sodom and Gomorrah. At this point in time, it was too, it was, the, the deal was done. And they didn't even know it. But it's not too late for you. It's not too late to get right with God. If you have breath in your lungs, then you have the opportunity to get right with Jesus. There's time for you. And I encourage you to do business with God. I encourage you to receive Jesus into your life right now to turn away from these sins in your life that you know God doesn't want in your life, that you know is hindering you from walking in all He has, get rid of those things and start walking with Jesus tonight. Do it tonight. If you don't know what that looks like, I can tell you what that looks like. One of my leaders, talk to one of my leaders. We would love to give you direction. But you need to take care of this. You cannot sit here and allow God to speak to your heart and show you the example of, of sin and judgment and righteousness and feel that tug and then ignore it and then expect to feel it again some other time. You need to take care of that right this moment. And I'm not even going to ask you to raise your hands tonight. I'm not going to ask you to pray a prayer with me. I'm just going to trust you're going to, you're going to do it. You, you need to take care of that business. As we close out this last song, you pray to the Lord. You talk to Him. As you leave here, you let it change your actions. And you see God show up in amazing ways. You will see Him show up to encourage, to strengthen, and to direct you. Amen? Let's pray. And Father, we want to just give you thanks, God, that our example of faith in Abraham is, is a tremendous one. What a, an amazing, righteous man. But we're also grateful that he was flawed. Lord, because so are we. We struggle daily. Lord, we have a difficult time rationalizing. We, we so, so often try to wrap our minds around what it is you're trying to do. But again, you have not called us to understand. You've called us to trust and obey. And so, Lord, I pray, God, that as we have received this example, as you've made us aware of the reality of judgment, 
that we would not take this information for granted, that we would not lose sight of it, we would not look in the mirror and see the changes we have to make and walk away and not make the changes, but Lord, that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct us in righteousness. Lord, that we would go out from here and obey what it is you've been calling us to do. That we would be reticent and vigilant looking for you to speak to us day to day in those moments of service. And that we would, we would be changed, Lord God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.